that's the countryside issue. It's not. It's our survival. It's our future on this planet. And it's not just about this country either. It's a really important question to become educated in and, and involved in. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Survive in Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader-funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to have a very special guest on the show. Me and Tiso are very, very big fans of person sat right in front of us now, Professor Ron Ware, who is currently a visiting professor in gender studies at the London School of Economics. We just had a really big conversation about how we introduce Ron, because if you know your sociology, know your social sciences, know your humanities, you should know about Ron's work. And also you should know about Ron's work if you didn't know about Ron's work anyway, if you listen to the show. But Ron has a lot of, I said, I usually say accolades, but I've just found out from Ron that that isn't actually the word I mean. I mean, achievement, CV. 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 List of things, isn't it? So I'm going to start off by saying that Ron is a writer, photographer and gardener. She's also the writer of one of my favourite books, Beyond the Pale. She wrote Out of Whiteness with Les Back. She's one of the OG scholar activists, um, we would say, particularly thinking about sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, currently um, organisers, people that we politics and people that we talk about on the show Ron has very much been always already involved I would say although she probably sat thinking um she now stopped saying that <laughs> but it's true but it's true so one of the OG scholar activists previous editor of the anti-fascist magazine Searchlight um Ron is an environmental designer teacher cultural geographer sociologist although would you say that you're a sociologist you didn't say that you wanted to be called a sociologist no I forgot to say I'm a recovering academic you're a recovering <laughs> academic but most importantly now Ron finally gets to call herself a writer that's right and that's really good because that means that you don't have to you can you don't have to necessarily write in a certain way yes and also I didn't start out as a sociologist Mm. I did actually study sociology in um, in the 70s for one term Mm. at university and I decided Mm. it wasn't for me Mm. so I I kind of came to it later and it was you know on and off a happy home but Mm. I didn't stay being a sociologist when Mm. I left Mm. and what's really exciting today is that Ron has got a new book out called Return of a Native Learning from the Land this book it's written in a very intimate and personal and political way but for me it's it's really exciting to have Ron on the show because as you as listeners will know like I'm so interested in rurality suburban places places outside of cities their links to coloniality their how much of our how we understand ourselves is so intrinsic to yeah the land and I think that Ron perfectly captures this in this book 
I also think that this this book, and I've been really fortunate enough to exchange many email with Ron about rural spaces over the years, but um, I think that this book is so important because we're about to enter a period where we've got like new census data coming out. We've got obviously we've got um, authoritarian far right government. Like Europe's gone further and further to the right again. So places like rural spaces or places that are uh, imagined as um, and completely white or not linked to anything other than their whiteness or Englishness are becoming sort of not reimagined but it's reasserting these places as, as white spaces only and when we know that there's more kind of like people of colour black people becoming more upward middle class and there's like this sort of like projections of fears around us moving to these places and like but actually what this book shows us and what Ron's overall I think intellectual project shows us is that these places have always been linked to us like as black people as like the empire um colonialism all that stuff do you know what I mean I guess the theme that comes through when I was reading the book Ron was the interconnectedness of things mm. so sometimes that'd be in a physical thing in the land and sometimes in the temporal notion as in through time so when you're speaking about piece of flint on the floor that piece of flint is a stone, but it's also a prehistoric axe. So it's connected over time. So that's what kind of jumped out of me when I was looking at the work. Welcome to the show, Ron, and thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you, Chantel. Thank you, Tiso. It's really great to be here. And thank you very much for your uh, generous introduction. Uh, it is quite complicated to summarise what I have done because I haven't taken a straightforward route and I didn't set out to be an academic I set out to be a writer, journalist, photographer, and then, you know, like things happened. So, so you've said lots of things that I want to respond to already. Yay! <laughs> First of all, you said it was intimate. Mm-hmm. And I will say this is not a memoir. No, it's not. It's not a memoir. And I adopt a style of writing with which I feel very comfortable, which is the sort of feminist life writing, using aspects of your life and your experience as a sort of politics of location. And obviously I've been very influenced by Adrian Rich. I've talked about that a lot in the past in that particular essay, but other other writers too from that era, from the 70s and 80s, basically that's where I learned to write or I felt comfortable writing. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Um, what you say about rural spaces and this moment in time and what we think of as rural, the aim of the book was to, to sort of find connections between the urban and rural in the interest of dismantling the sense that they're completely opposite that there's a dichotomy between them. You're either this or that. And to really explore what we mean by rural and how to sort of overcome that that division and see the interconnectedness over time. Um, when you say interconnectedness, actually that, that as I understand, is the basis of, of how to think ecologically, that you see connections everywhere, <clears throat> which is why the book goes all over the place. And... Um, you know, women's washing and um, weeds and archaeology and, uh, you know, history, deep history and history of empire, all, all kinds of things, and my life in terms of going backwards and forwards. But I'm trying to make those interconnections, which is how we think, really, and that's how, how if, we're, if we're open to, you know, are open to a politics of, of questioning and change, it's really how we go about, we should be going about being attentive to everything around us, right? So, um, it's also funny as well in parts. Can I just say? Oh, please, thank you. It's, it's funny. <laughs> like, it's really funny. Like, I think that's such a hard thing to do, like, through the written yeah. words. Sorry, that's a bit, it seems like a bit off piece, but I think you talking about how 
it's essential for us to understand everything around us and interconnectedness. But one of the things I think that we struggle with on the left is like kind of telling people what to do without bringing in that human element to it. And I think the combination of life writing, but also like humour, the way that you do it, I think it has, it brings about the pos- a, po- a politics of possibility of bringing people with you. And I think it's really hard to do that. And I think you, you do it in this book. Yeah, you're talking about how we should be, but people paying attention, being attentive. How does one become that way? sometimes the evident well, what's out there is put in service of a certain narrative so you start thinking following that narrative so sometimes it's contextualized in a narrative events are contextualized in a narrative or nationalism or events are contextualized in another specific way how we think naturally or normally kind of obscured really so for example let's go back to the example of a piece of flint now to most people that'd be a stone but once you, if you have an understanding what you're looking for you will see prehistoric tools so unless you have the conceptual tools to understand the connect- connectedness of things, you're just kind of, you just see events as they are. Does that make sense? Make yes. Sense? Well, well the, the technique that I adopt in the book, as you know, is mm-hmm. to stand in one place and to look down. So, so I start with looking down at the ground and at the kind of ground it is, at the soil itself. And there's a thing about me picking up soil and looking at it, which obviously I, I, I did, but not necessarily at that moment. Sort of asking what what is it about that soil and that has sort of helped to create that kind of environment? Where is it? Start to unpick the geography of it and just sort of start there as a kind of trail. So one thing leads to another. This is something that I did with Beyond the Pale too. Just find things. You know, I remember finding a, a, a Docklands Light Railway had just started in, um, when was I writing? Over, well, over a long period in the 80s. And, you know, there was a newspaper and there was a thing about safety and they were like, images of people with different coloured skin and it was like it was just sitting there or, or you know you can be absolutely anywhere at the dentist and find something that has something which you as a sort of um, someone who analyses things would be able to think hang on this is a representation of something which I need to kind of question or challenge so you don't need to go anywhere you can just find things it's it's um it sounds kind of unplanned but once you're open to things you start seeing it mm-hmm. So I say that that's a sort of technique, and and obviously you bring things in, and and things start to um, things start to roll. So I found out a lot of things while I was writing the book. For example, I found out debates about farming, about food, about livestock, about weeds, about uh, um, conservation. You know, all kinds of things I found out while I was writing it. So writing also for me is that's the fun of it. It's a, is a way of finding things out actually mm-hmm. as well it'd be really good to tell us how you came to write the book and like where and I think it would be helpful to sort of talk about the locations in which that where we're we're talking about where it is where it is because we do have an international audience um (laughs) so yeah that would be really good so I where to start really I mean I've been quite open about the fact the book took 20 years and you know it has its own life I suppose I was very lucky because I uh, worked as uh, at an organisation called Women's Design Service in the 80s and learned a lot about urban planning and and environmental design and this was an offshoot of the sort of feminist architectural um, organisation uh, firm Matrix but it, but it was a you know I didn't have to have any expertise when I joined and again I learned a, a huge amount and then I kind of managed to get a job. Um, at the University of Greenwich in the School of Humanities, which was then trying to set up a planning degree, uh, 
with proper planners. So it's in, in sort of a humanities uh, approach to urban planning, which was very innovative. But instead, I ended up being in a small team of environmental humanities people, mm-hmm. and we made a new degree called cultural geography, which at that time, in this was by then was about 92, 93, was just getting off the ground as a sort of breakaway from the sort of traditional um, forms of geography you know, with Michael Keith and all kinds of people. It was very exciting, and I just felt found myself in it. And the first, uh, but as, as a, I, the first thing I got was a part-time job teaching a course called Landscape and Society. And I, was like, I can do it. I can do it. Mm. Mm, I can do it. I had no idea. I had no idea what was entailed, what the word landscape meant, anything. I thought it was like what you saw out the window, literally. Um, but they were great. They just took took me on, and it was the most brilliant module it was a two year two term mm. two semester module the first part i did as a uh, ideas about nature ideas about uh, you know landscape in art and this kind of construction of, of environments to look like paintings and you know a whole history of things i didn't know about and in the second one we did urban landscapes so i just found myself having an education that i really wanted and then I taught that for several years and developed it. And um, but the first, the very first class I did, I remember. And I, I've 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 talked about this before, but I did it with the the, the Ramblers, which now we call it Right to Rome. The Ramblers were um, make, doing protests. I forget where in which part of the country. So I got half the class to pretend that they were um, Ramblers, and the other half to pretend they were landowners, and sort of set them against each other and tried to find what was their sort of intuitive arguments that they would use to to trespass which we didn't use i think we said trespass at that time but you know to walk through people's land and why they would be stopped and then switch obviously and anyway it was a very um it was a fantastic group of academics to work with we went on proper field trips you know stayed the night went but the field trips were in cities and now i learned to look at things like um drain covers and signposts and where the houses looked and you know, we went up north, we looked at back-to-backs. I just learned a whole lot about planning, building, design, um, periodization, and, of course, the industrial industrialization that took place in the sort of first half of the um, 19th century. I think that really accounts for why this book happened in the end. And at a certain point, I got a um, grant to, to write this book, which... It seemed like a doable thing in a year because I grew up in a rural area in Hampshire, northern Hampshire, and people who I knew either from this country, from not from the States or people who'd grown up in London were a bit fascinated with like what life was like. And every time I said, oh, we did that in our village, they would be sort of surprised that that could have happened. So the plan was to write something to make the village kind of come into the world, which indeed it was in the world. You know, it wasn't it hadn't gone anywhere. So it was going to be about the globalization of a village. So I thought, oh, I could do that in a year. But I hadn't actually, I was in the middle of writing out of whiteness, slight obstacle. And the second thing was that uh, I hated doing it. I absolutely hated it. I hated going there. I thought, I hate this place. I don't really mm. properly write about it. It's too close. Mm. So it just took a long time to kind of find a way then to, but I did a lot, a lot of interviews and, um, and then went to live in the States. Um, you know, with our family, went to live in the States. 
And I thought, well, I'll, I'll write it here. I've got all the material, I'll write it here. Somewhere else, quietly write it. Mm. I started writing it and then got very sidetracked by things like Flint, funnily enough. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> interesting stuff. <laughs> well, because the sense of time in the US is very different because there we were in New England. Um, the kids in school start their national history in 1600 and something. There was nothing before that. But you're in an area where a lot of the names of places and beaches are uh, Native American. Uh, there was a state-of-the-art museum about the Mushantucket Pequod life, ways of life, going back to the Ice Age, just down the road. So I became very interested in concepts of time and deep time and archaeological time and so on. And at the same time, it was 9-11, and then there was a build-up to the Iraq War. And during this writing of it, I'd begun to write a kind of diary, as I, you know, as one does, just writing everyday stuff, and kind of wove that in. So it was a little bit hard to pull together. Can I just roll back to... I yeah, please to do. Talk, can I roll back to um, talking about where you're from? And, I mean, I know we've, we've spoken about this um, a lot, Fran, about how how difficult it is to explain to people that haven't grown up in towns or villages what that is actually like when you leave and return um and i think you're i think you're so good at writing about this stuff it really inspires me but how like to make an intellectual project around that stuff is so deeply personal and intimate but also so political because so many people think they know about these places but actually like as you say it the interconnectedness or the understanding of location has to really focus on the details around it. I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to read a bit from the book anyway. When people ask me where I'm from, I've never ne- really known what to say. This is not because I've got anything to hide, but because after I'd realised it was not in fact the centre of the universe, there never seemed to be anything sufficiently distinctive to mark the spot. Hampshire sounds too posh or at least too imprecise. If you gave me a map of England, I'd probably put the pin in the wrong place. This part of the country is not quite far enough to be the southwest. It's definitely not the southeast, nor is it even close to the Midlands. And it's nowhere near the seaside, not unless you want to spend a whole day in the car. It's hard to imagine it now, but until fairly recently, counties were thought to produce different kinds of people who were physically distinguishable from each other. These different traits were largely derived from the geographical position of the county, which had determined its formation and ultimately its fate, historically, economically and socially. In the case of Hampshire, its location seemed to have functioned as a sort of front door to the world, inviting successive invasions into the country with open arms. Rightly in 1934, um, F.E. Stevens, author of The New Forest Beautiful, The Hampshire Pageant, The Pageant of Hampton, The Battle Story of the Hampshire Regiment, observed that Hampshire folk are a mixed lot, to a greater degree perhaps than the people of those shires which escaped the impact of the successive invasions of the remote years. Now, I think this is really good and I need to apologise, Ron, because in my introduction to you, I didn't um, talk about your writing on militarisation and the military. And obviously this part of um, England, the UK, is, as we see in the book, is very, very into the military the army and obviously that's been that's quite that that um also corresponds with quite a lot of your personal like story history and come into academia as well and i know we've spoken about this a lot but i think that places like andover like when you go there like it people are so 
connected to the military and like if you don't like can you remember like for you t like growing up in east london like thinking about like the military and the army and stuff like how close to it that do you feel like a distance to it okay so Um, when i picked up this book initially my first thoughts were i read it as a city person yeah my first so i'm reading it as a city person in my head there is that kind of imagined space between us yeah and when you speak about being imprecise about not where you're from as a Londoner, I know definitely where I'm from, 100%. I've been told, not by just by my own self, but by society, by the rest of the country, by the way the world talks about London. So it's very clear in my head where I am versus someone who, until I left London, who lives that somewhere in the counties, home counties, it's irrelevant to me because that's the, I guess, the hubris, the arrogance of people living in the city. The inertia is all down here. The money's here. Well, when I was younger, why would I even consider outside London Mm. and it wasn't until I leave London and you start seeing the world and you understand it but initially that's how I started reading it as a as a Londoner and I think as well yeah just on that point and this is what I was saying earlier on and when we were in the pre-chat like I have to be careful to not make it too personal to make it to the wider topics we're talking about here but that's why when I read the book I just found it so it was so um affirming to read about a place which is quite similar i grew up in the west midlands in in a town called bromsgrove which has a quite a similar kind of history in terms of like the militarization and like how close or how much the location has a affinity to the army basically so to read it in this way and to 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 see that I, I don't know what it's like to grow up in the city um in the way that you did too but like some of the things that ron talks about in this book like you only know what you know and like that it's yeah. so connected to place. Yeah, 100% like before I start, you start going to university and kind of doing a deeper learning, my idea of the of the countryside is of sheep and cows. It's of <laughs> land that's not really used in a way that that's not productive. Yeah. I don't really think of it that way. That's, of, that's exactly what I was trying to challenge, the idea that yeah. the rural is <laughs> empty. Yes, but, exactly. Yes. But I guess that's a modern creation, right? It's, it's a very recent thing because there's still... Obviously, we know that we, there's farms, but uh, my kind of my understanding as I was going for going for school and how we put across is industrialization was the thing. Farming had been kind of minimized. We know it goes on, but it's not as important as manufacturing. And this still comes through in kind of more recent times. Are you talking about like sort of from the agricultural to the industrial? Yeah, right, yeah. So fine, yeah. that kind of split. So when I think of empty spaces. When I was imagining empty spaces, I'm thinking of the industrial rather than the ag- agricultural. I think what's interesting about that, Tim, what Ron does cover in the book is mm. how much, because you said like wealth in London, mm. but all the wealth's in these places. Like, yeah, there's the money, way, there's money. The, like <laughs> the land ownership, the hoarding, the inheritance. But what's the, interesting is, is that how bankers from the city making money, speculative money, yeah. invest, in it, invest in these fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And invest overseas. Yeah. So the people with the money are investing in the land and de-invest in the people that lived there. Or inheritance, But yeah. this is the continuation of a historical trend. So the Normans, Norwegians, all these people that come over with power to disinvest the kind of normal people there, yeah. so. First yeah. of all, the idea of being a city person. Well, first of all, I'd say there's a, there's a, there's a big issue of generation. So just to go mm. back to the military question. Mm. So being born in the 50s, um, you know, a lot of things shaped my life that, were, that I've come to understand differently uh, as I've got older. But one of the things I think my generation did was to leave home as you know as soon as possible. It wasn't just like go to university and then kind of go home and then think about what to do. 
a lot of people would just like head out, you know, and particularly if they were from areas like, um, you know, villages, because there was no work, there was no way you could stay there uh, at all. So that's that's one trajectory. So I became a city person. You know, I was in, lived in Birmingham a long time and um, lived in London and didn't. I think I had one experience of living in a village, and that was a sort of contingent thing. It happened because of um, particular circumstances, and it was it was the hot summer of 1976, which won't mean anything to you, but it was like very hot every day for a long time, and it was a bit of a crisis. And I was happening to happen to live in Kent, but I didn't. I would never have wanted to stay there. There was nothing in the village to hold me there. Not even the sort of cherry trees. I mean, they were over and it was time to go back to the city. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people became city people and not disavowed where they came from, but didn't relate to it anymore. And, you know, time goes by and you just make a life. And living in London is, London's a really special place. So, as was Birmingham too, I have to say. Since writing this book, funnily enough, I've become to feel more like a country person. And what I say, mean by that is, is, and that's why I said I am, about gardening because the ability to grow food and to have space to grow food is not confined to people who live in rural areas. So the whole allotment movement, for example, is absolutely fascinating. I have an allotment. The people who have patches there, you can learn a huge amount from them. So actually being able to talk about how things grow and how food grows makes me feel more involved in debates about food and farming, which are really important. And as you say, left to that's the countryside issue. It's not. It's our survival. It's our future on this planet. And it's not just about this country either. It's a really important question to become educated in and, and involved in. Especially now, there are big debates going on all around us now, um, which we need to have um, informed opinions about and, and participate in. So the military thing, just to go back to that, uh, yes, our town was notoriously, Andover was like, you didn't go there on Saturday nights because of the you know squaddies, as they were known. But the military action really was partly on Salisbury Plain, which is a, another project I'm involved in, which goes back to the late 19th century when they bought up loads of land. But also that particular thing you read out from Mr. Stevens, whose book I can't remember where I found, uh, about Hampshire. I think it was just in my parents' bookshelf forever. And by the way, the idea that people in different counties had an, their own identity was just completely fascinating. Mm -mm. But more than that... People in different parishes at one point were thought to be different. And then if you speak to anybody from the Caribbean, that is still true today. It's an, as, as a, an important aside, mm -hmm. so I've been told. Aldershot is also in Hampshire. So that's what he's referring to, Aldershot. So soldiers come to Aldershot, which is, uh, is if you've ever been there, the home of the British Army still says that, even though it's not the most sort of important, biggest base. Uh, people came there from all over the country and intermarried, and that brought in a mixture so that's one aspect of that story, but also Southampton being a big port and being open to the channel. That's that's the other thing about Hampshire being open to the world. and um, So that's another thread which kind of runs through, which is about the importance of, of physical geography uh, in terms of how people think about place and uh, how think think about, you know, place on different scales and the question of connection with the rest of the world. So I kind of abandoned the idea of writing about my village because one of the things that was difficult was that people always say, where's your village? And I'd say, it doesn't matter. And they'd say, what's the name of the village? I'd say, well, it doesn't matter, you wouldn't know. And mostly they didn't know. Sometimes they actually did know, which was really odd. <laughs> and so I felt uncomfortable. My mother still lived there. I, 
I just felt uncomfortable writing about people that she knew and was in contact with. And at the same time, there was a, uh, an amazing history of the parish published in 2000 when mine sh you know, should have been finished. And it was someone who worked in publishing who was obviously able to commission people to do research, archival research, interviews, so on and so forth. And it was, you know, published, paid for privately. It's an incredible resource, absolutely incredible resource to, to use any any um, subsequently. But it kind of put me off doing something like that. And then, you know, I got caught up in, in doing anti-war stuff and, and doing other projects. So, in fact, I wrote about the army throughout the sort of 2010, that sort of era. And then I went back to it more recently, very recently, in 2018, I thought, I've really got to get this thing done. I had various stabs at it. I'd talked quite a lot to Sarah Neal, and I, we sort of overlapped at the OU. And she does. she's one of the main people working on sort of racism and rural England in this country. But And I had this manuscript, which I would give people to read if they wanted it, and then they would say it's great. But I, I, it was no, you know, it's a very hard thing to kind of pull together. Like, what is the point? What is going on here? Didn't quite work. So then I just had to get on with it and various things made it possible to just finish it much more quickly. I just suddenly saw an outline and saw a way to do it and sort of zipped through it. And I used quite a lot of the old material, had the wonderful interviews from 98, 99, a couple of older people who could remember, you know, very far back. So I could almost span the whole 20th century. I didn't have to go and do more interviews. I had to do the ethics thing at Kingston. Somebody in the ethics committee said, um, what would you do if, if you ask people how things have changed and um, they get upset? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I didn't do any interviews. I tried to interview the shepherd, that's one thing, and I had an ongoing on and off conversation with the farmer and he was very he was very helpful. And that was like one farmer is enough really to know, to have an anchor, mm. but it's not a sociology book in mm. the sense I go around mm. talking to people. Um, and then I was able to give it a structure to sort of pull it together because I think time, although philosophically it's very interesting to think about deep time and future and, and their relationship and so on and so forth, actually for the reader you need a structure to know what time are we in now, you know, so it has a structure and of a year and then of course things happened during that year which I could not have predicted, the pandemic being one thing which was kind of useful in many ways but also the murder that takes place in the summer and then you've got the seasonal thing and the change of the landscape and so on and so forth so I was saying that the the village as a unit was problematic because there are a lot of sociologies of villages and how they've changed and I really didn't want to write in that genre so or community I didn't really want to talk about community so uh, I went up the road to a a sort of crossroads and <clears throat> decided to sort of stand there and I knew from something someone had told me that one of the bits of land there if you think of it divided into four one of the bits of land had um, been plowed up in the war and was never given back to the people mm. as was promised so I thought well I'll start with that and the person who'd campaigned around that lived just down the road a guy called Roly Clark so I started with that and then I found out that the area had been enclosed and I looked up who'd enclosed it and then I uh, looked at the UCL site and you know it didn't have to do very much it just unraveled like that and that became also a sort of point um, a fixed point also you know to help the reader as much as myself to sort of stand there and look in different directions and just see the world from there and that was really the technique that developed very quickly 
And from then on, it was hard to keep up with the way the world appeared, actually. But that's what I get when I read it. It's like a sense of like a spider web. It starts at a point and it kind of like, they all kind of branch off from different points, but they all are connected. Oh, yeah. So you need to come back mm-hmm. and sort of ground yourself in this spot, you know, whether it's the actual signpost or, or the soil or, you know, or, uh, or, or, the, or, or a place where things happened as well. I guess when I read the book, it's trying to use lessons of the past to kind of answer the, or kind of think critically about the challenges that we're facing now with climate change and uh, an existential threat that everyone's uh, involved in. So looking back at the past, but how do we know when something's new and novel to approach this problem or it's just a kind of reiteration of of, of um, past problems or I can kind of say or or it just reinforces the status quo under a different name so for example I was going to give you an example before was the shift from petrol cars to electric cars it seems like a panacea to people people think that this is a good thing but if you look at it still there's still a big issue we've confronted the issue of exhaust pipes but we still haven't dish- we haven't dealt with the issue of extraction, lithium batteries, having to power these cars. It falls into the narrative of manufacturing, which falls into the kind of political realm of jobs. So politicians will push for it. People will push for it. So it reinforces the idea of there's, there's no difference. You're going back to polluting. And also to, to create all this electricity, you have to build more power plants. So you're polluting more, not less. Mm-hmm. So you, you dealt with one problem but you've reinforced the status quo in other, i.e. you've reinforced capitalist extraction. Well, that that really is one of the threads of the book because... Mm-hmm. So, well, let's look at the sort of industrialization of farming and take the threshing machine. So, obviously, a lot of farming is backbreaking. You know, have no machinery at all, and just sort of rudimentary tools. A lot of it was really hard work and took a really long time. And I'm not saying there was like a golden age, you know, crops failed and a lot of things happening. So people were beginning to look for, people were constantly looking for new ways to to do, um, say, arable farming. And we know we learned about the agricultural revolution in the um, 18th century and so on and so forth. And obviously there's different ways of understanding that in relation to the history of farming. So you, so people invent a threshing machine, which means that a job that took all the autumn months could be done in one month. So there was no work for people to do in the other months. So, so there's that sort of tension all the time between saving labour and uh, putting people out of work. So that's a very important story, which of course now there's hardly anybody working on the land. It's all done by you know, computerized, huge, very expensive machines, which farmers can't afford to buy. So they're kind of, they buy, they kind of group together and buy things or they get contractors to come. Um, and, you know, there's actually a, a firm in um, somewhere else in Hampshire, uh, I read about who were doing, you know, farming by drones that they could actually spot the wrong weeds that they could zap and know the right weeds to leave that were actually not harmful for the soil. So there's a kind of constant... Um, reinvention of technology which is having an impact on ways of life that sometimes can't be predicted and then there's the question of um, food this is what I mean about paying attention actually so if you know that history and you know how where things lead perhaps there are ways of getting involved in what's happening in farming as you build on this knowledge that isn't just like well that's that's for them to 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 figure out Um, I don't know anything about it so, for example, I've just written an, an article which pulls out something I only really discovered 
to when I'd finished the book, which is about um, beef cattle. So there was a fantastic innovative scientist called Justus von Liebig in Germany who was very innovative in terms of thinking about soil. And of course, the more people were able to grow things and sort of produce more crops in a shorter time, the soil became exhausted and people realized you had to put something back into the soil. So the question of fertilizer is also very interesting. So Liebig became very interested in fertilizer as a um, commercial project, actually, as, as a scientist. And there were people in this country also working on it. So there's the question of the, the bones, right? But even yesterday, there's an article in The Observer saying the new project's being set up to examine whether the bodies and Waterloo, Battle of Waterloo, were actually dug up and sent to Britain to be ground into bone meal to be used as fertilizer. So that's still, that's going to come up again mm. in the news, even though nobody knew about it for like many years. Um, people who haven't read the book will be wondering what bones have to do with fertilizer and what has to do with Liebig. Okay, so Liebig was someone who at some point realized that you can't just keep putting stuff back into the soil. There's some problem there that can't be fixed. And that one of the problems is to do with how, um, in a way, disconnected we've come become from the processes of producing our own food. Now that's that's another argument which I won't go into now. But one of the things he did he did was he could see that um, people were, as they moved from the countryside into the towns and cities, sort of sucked in by the fact that the work was diminishing in rural areas, and it was work. You know, the the factories were sort of sucking people off the land. So as that process took place, you could see there was this huge demand for protein, new forms of protein. People were eating differently. And a lot of the burden fell on women preparing food, but obviously a lot of women had to work as well in that process. So he came up with something called extract of meat, uh, which was used by boiling beef, basically. It was a kind of version of something called beef tea that was thought to be good for you. So anyway, he made this sort of... Um, commercial version, which, which of course is very expensive because you need a lot of beef to make a small amount, a small pot of what we would now think of as bovril. It's mm -hmm. a bit like oh, that. So, yeah, yeah. Bovril, that's another story. Don't let me start on that, please. <laughs> it's not in the book, and I found out later. Anyway, it's very... And it, yes. So, so basically, Liebig became, to cut a long story short, Liebig set up a company in... Um, the 1860s, with a German startup guy, an entrepreneur, actually, no, it wasn't a startup guy, that's unfair. He was actually working in railways and things in Brazil. He was probably a, some kind of engineer. And he could see that all the cattle in Southern America were, South America, were not, were kind of being used for their hides and their hooves, but nobody was actually eating the meat. That wasn't really what they were farmed for. So they set up a company in Uruguay uh, where they would um, process the meat from these cattle and turn it into products like this extract of meat, which would then be um, marketed back in Europe. And the place they did it was called Frey Bentos. Oh, it's in the pies? Yes. And then they'd be turned into the pies, where they learned how to do canning and freezing and all that kind of stuff. They started off uh, making this extract, and the reason it was so popular in Europe was because um, it was thought to be very good for soldiers as a sort of portable food. And in the Franco-Prussian War, the French got upset. They thought the Prussians were winning because they had more meat products. So then they commissioned... Um, I said I wouldn't tell this story. They commissioned somebody in Canada to produce an equivalent because it wasn't patent, patented. 
and that was what became Bovril. There is more to say about that, oh, but I won't say it now. Nice. Anyway, the OXO cube, which people still use now, uh, was was produced in. They managed to find a, a solid form of this extract in the early 1900s, and then that, of course, that became a war food as well. All the you know, millions, and millions were sold in the trenches, so on and so forth, and the OXO tower, all the rest of it. I mean, you just find these incredible histories that sort of unravel as you start following them. But, but your original question, which was very good, was was how do we know that these things are going to fix the problem that we're all struggling with now? A good example, again, sticking with meat, is the idea that livestock farming is fundamentally one of the biggest problems that we face. Livestock farming is not compatible with cutting carbon emissions because of the amount of methane and so on and so forth. Lots of you know, stuff about that. So what we should do is eat lab-grown meat or microorganisms. So that's another thread that runs through the book when I start describing a field. Is the field actually the best way to to live, to grow to grow food? And seeing a field as a as the as a way to access sunlight seemed a really interesting idea to me. It was actually from a science writer called Nigel Calder. Seeing a field as an open space which captures the sunlight in a sort of maximal way. That's what a field is. And then later on, realizing that um, what we call weeds are actually plants that also like being in open sunlight and don't like shade. So wherever you have farming, you have these weeds. And we call them weeds because they're not uh, things we can eat or yeah. use. And that many of those plants came from the Arctic in the first place and sort of traveled with people. There's lots of ways of thinking about plants in oh, relation to you know everything one knows everything but what's interesting is though like so the idea of farming as it turns out is problematic but it's the narrative we tell ourselves in, in human history our, our human story starts with the farming the advent of farming that's what we're told anyway that's the narrative well, right? one of the things I should say is that I don't know if you've come across a book called The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengro. So I found an article by them from 2018 and I found that very helpful because what they're trying to do is trouble the idea that we think we know these narratives. And in the shorter version, there was a sort of indication that these narratives are very problematic in terms of thinking about what we're going to do in future. And maybe they're resources from what we can find out about the past through archaeology, anthropology and so on that will help us imagine to get sort of unstuck so we don't have to think things have to be like this. We can think there are other ways in which people organize themselves in the past, i.e. seasonally, for example, um, in, with a hierarchy one part of the year and not other part of the year that can help us think we don't have to live like this now. But I think it's, I think the problem is with Western epistemologies. So, for example, the I can't remember who said it, but looking at the, the, the sand people who were known as the pygmy people, they never had farming. They still live in a hunter-gathering lifestyle. And Guy was arguing at the time and saying that the advent of farming introduced this idea of diseases into the population that these people have. But we saw these people as primitive. And because their lifestyle is primitive, this is why we never took it on board. We never considered it. And I guess that kind of pulls into kind of one of the threads in your book, i.e. like deep time and understand the concept of time. So, for example, you said America has a very kind of distorted way of time. When the Aborigines have see an object, they see time in a very different concept they don't see this kind of linear notion mm -hmm. but the western epistemology sees it in this linear way and so it, when we look back at stuff given our view we might see it as primitive and disregard it even though 
the answer has always been there. The same people still exist. I think they've lived the same existence for the last 50,000 years or something ridiculous like that. And they've, I guess when the first Europeans saw them with their arrows, their bows and arrows, when, when we started analysing it, we really didn't realise how complex it was. So they can, they can knock an animal out without poisoning it and still eat the meat. And their arrows are very small, not, don't require much power. And they've survived pandemics, earthquakes. Mm-hmm. The only thing they didn't survive was colonialism. Mm-hmm. So um, it, shows you, it shows you how, again, the Western epistemologies cause you to look at things in a certain particular way. And I guess sometimes when we look at things, you might disregard stuff because the narrative we told ourselves is that what comes from here is superior. Yes, and I, I think in in agriculture and, and horticulture, we're just growing generally. You you realise that if you grow your own food, for example, if you try and grow something, you realise actually how hard it is and how much you need experience and how much you can experiment as well. So if you looking if you look at farming now, and I've subscribed to a number of different websites where I get sent these sort of weekly kind of roundups of things going on and you can learn an awful lot about what's what people are doing in farming and what kind of techniques people are using that seem old-fashioned um, for example you know not digging not digging the ground or I mean they're not going to save the world but I mean they are a different kind of farming and there's a big big debate about that and again it's very easy to get sort of shrunk into what's happening in England or the UK and it's very important to think about you know how people without land produce food and how the, the Via Campesina movement or how people are producing food in sustainable conditions in many parts of the world and have been for a long time and how possible it is to actually produce a lot of food. I forget the exact statistics, um, but a lot of food is produced on small scale sustainably mm-hmm. in different parts of the world. So, so yes, you're absolutely right about the kind of, you know, the Western narrative and the paradigm and so on and so forth. And that's what writers like David Wengrow and David Graeber were trying to do or, you know, lots of other people. I think that's partly why their book has, you know, been so successful because people are very excited by the idea that actually there's all this other knowledge and other yeah. ideas we can we can think about, use to think about how we're going to work together now, how we're going to kind of survive. I was going to say, but I guess the idea of eating something, in the book you kind of pointed out, the idea we're heading to is like eating, almost eating like a pill, like in most sci-fi films, like synthetic foods. I guess there's an intergenerational thing there. So a certain generation would bulk at the idea of eating something that's entirely man-made, that has no kind of living substance. But what's substance that? But based on what Von's just said about, like, we think we know, but we don't, is that, like, that's anecdotally, like, do you know what I mean? Like, we don't, we, we don't, we think we know what people are up for. Uh, yeah, And that's I, I, often based on kind of what, whether it's the media, government, sort of what they say that we, that quote unquote ordinary people mm. want. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think even like it's, sort it's of challenging. Just, it's, it's, limited, it's limited to your own experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, for well, example, sorry, go on. Go on. Well, I just think the whole politics of food is really, it's really terrifying. Well, it's fascinating. It's terrifying at the moment as food shortages mm. will really start to kick in, oh, you know, more and more because of war and, and what's going on in, um, you know, parts of, Eastern Europe, but but elsewhere in the world, yeah, you know, yeah. like he massive floods in Bangladesh, you know, that nobody's talking about, or wars in other parts of the world, and and so the question of food supply and food sovereignty are really important to understand. Um, so where was I going with that? So the, you know, a lot of people eat processed food now. You know, far too many people eat processed food, which is really 
not good for you and, you know, huge health crises and so on and so forth. And this is particularly true in the US. So is the jump to, you know, manufactured food in factories actually going to make any difference? It's a it's an opportunity for people who've got money to invest. Will it mean that if we don't have cows intensive livestock farming and people can be sort of weaned away from meat, will that help? Well, you said before, you know, one the answer to one lot of problems produces another lot of problems. You still need energy, you still need mm. machinery to produce it, you still need, you know, parts of the animal actually to make the lab-grown meat, to make mm. that it's like meat and people have memory of meat. You know, on the other hand, people can people change their... Diets do change over time as things become more or less acceptable or available. Mm. And they can change very quickly in times of war. Mm. And if in times of war, which is quite interesting, it's like there was a, an article the other day to see how obviously farming is, is, is more automated, but that's now part of the front line of war. So people have been, people's tractors have been hijacked by foreign actors because they, no one drives them, they're computerized. That's one of the dangers. Even though we've shifted that way, there's a possibility that it can be drawn into that kind of idea of like this kind of war. The automation of this part of human activity, i.e. feeding the population, is now open to being manipulated by outside actors. Well, I, I think the whole question of farming and its relationship to the Tories, so sticking with this country, yeah, yeah, yeah. is something that people perhaps don't understand. And, and the royal family. Do they do farming? No, not family, but I'm thinking about sort of a, a land ownership. Land ownership, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Sorry, 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 yeah. It, it, yeah. It, no, but they, they do, like the Dutchies stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There yeah. are, yes, they do. Um, yeah, so farming is a really huge subject and the whole question of Brexit and where our food's going to come from and the support for farming and whether farmers should be paid to do rewilding and what that means, the whole rewilding craze. Um planting trees, you know, there's an awful lot that they're to explore. And there's a lot of radical farmers who are trying to do things differently and who are organized as well. And there are a lot of farmers who are very involved with the sort of conservative party and, and, and have vast amounts of land. But actually the number of farmers is very small. It's really small, it's like barely six figures compared to other kinds of industries and other kinds of activities. Mm. Um, and I think the, what do I think? Lots of things. I think it's great we're talking about farming, mm. to be honestly, <laughs> to be honest. So if that group of people disappear, the fa farmers, i.e. people who have either inherited or, or grown up but in- But it depends what we mean by farmers. Okay. Obviously, they, you think of a family farm, but then you think of, of these people who saw land English farmland as an investment mm -hmm. through the 90s, you know, up to the present, particularly around the sort of before the crash, the far English farmland was incredibly good, an incredibly mm. good investment. One of the reasons was because you didn't have to pay inheritance tax if you were doing some kind of farming activity. Is that, that H&M, isn't it? Henny's done it. So, yeah, so the Swedish family who started H&M at, at some point, the Persson family bought a lot of land in Berkshire and uh, near Newbury and then they bought a village which is um, one of the villages named on the signpost where I'm standing very conveniently so they could become a sort of not a case study but a uh, an example of this phenomenon but actually 
all around there were these estates. If you think of England having been divided into these feudal estates that basically, you know, many of which kept their shape and were sort of parcels of land, often with a very big house attached. Some of these estates would go to people from from other parts of Europe, particularly. Um, and they did, you know, different kinds of farming. They used contractors because they didn't really sort of live there or they were committed to a certain kind of very high tech or advanced eco farming. So, for example, the, the big farm that was um, bought by Tim Landon, the guy who was uh, yeah. who supported the Sultan of Oman, uh, that land now is farmed, you know, with the state of the art eco farming. They have their own windmill, their own been put there since the since um seventies, uh, their own water supply and so on and so forth. And they're doing rewilding and all that kind of stuff. And that's another phenomenon that we're seeing that those landowners can now be paid to to or have been able to be paid with subsidies to do bits of rewilding and conservation. Well, nobody really lives there very much and nobody has much, you know, they don't employ many people. So there's all kinds of things with the politics of land ownership, which happily has been taken up by younger activists and writers like Guy Shrubsoul and has sort of melded, merged into the trespass movement as well. Where there's a real questioning of who owns this land, how is it being used, is it accessible, and if not, why not? So those are really important questions that... that um, important to take on as well it's not just a sort of sense of passive land being passive land being mm -hmm. uh, you know held uh, fortified by these landowners that there are different kinds of conversations there was something that we wanted to talk about as you've written so much about sort of like the far right whiteness military just quickly for the listeners what is your overall take on Europe as a whole what's happening at the moment <laughs> You've you've studied this for a long time. I didn't see that coming. I mean, I've become slightly averse to talking about whiteness as an abstract thing. But okay. Never as an abstract, always as a structural. Yeah, whiteness. What do we actually mean? It's it's a sort of thing people begin have begun to talk about, like oh, there's a whiteness. And I'm thinking, what do they actually mean by that? Do they mean there are a lot of white people? Do they mean there's a way of thinking? Do they mean there's a power structure? What do they mean by whiteness? And is it something, you know, are we talking about people who think of themselves as white and in thinking of themselves as white think that they have particular rights to, uh, you know, particular ways of life or particular resources or are they think of themselves as white as distinct from um, people of colour? Do they feel endangered, overwhelmed, entitled? You know, we hear a lot about the concept of indigeneity, do they feel connected to that? You know, what are we actually talking about? And is it useful to continue speaking about whiteness as something mm. that can sort of um, encompass all those different definitions? So that's really what I would say. I'm going to try an experimental thought and just think, if you constantly make racism the thing that's at the centre, you may be missing other kinds of conversations, other kinds of ways of of. of of thinking about what's going on politically and, and ways perhaps of missing opportunities to uh, come together around different issues. So in terms of thinking about, about food, where our food comes from, about climate, you know, where there's questions of race and uh, racism and exclusion, where are they important? Take, for example, the idea of the colonial countryside and that kind of history. 
once you've kind of explained that wealth that you can see in big houses, big estates, comes from ill-gotten gains, comes from this history, and you keep reminding people, what else can you do with it? You don't need mm. to keep going on about it. You need to move on. Mm. Otherwise, it becomes something which is a kind of, you know, automatic reaction. It doesn't really take you anywhere else. You need to keep moving. So I try and do that in the book. Like, this land was owned by people who are fantastically rich. Where do they get their money from? Of course, it was a sugar plantation in St. Kitts. You know, damn them. So I remind, every time their name comes up, I remind the reader that these were these people who did that, um, whatever else they've done. But I think it's not a place to get to stop and say, oh, look, you know, mm. there's that history again. Because that history is manifest in, in other ways as well, which perhaps we're not alert to. The other question I was going to say about this question of exclusion and the idea of, of the countryside, which is a term I don't like, being used as a resource for people's mental health. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that tends to abstract the rural is this place that's outside the cities, as separate from um, uh, the processes that have, have made the cities what they are. And I think that with some understanding of how, how places are constructed and changed over time, and change in relation to each other, and it's it's a it's it's a, a very complex cultural process that you know through poetry and and other forms of of you know literary representation going over two hundred years and so on and so forth, films and um, how this country is sort of sold abroad and many many different aspects. We think of the countryside, as I said, this sort of term as being uh, an empty space which now has to be reclaimed. Well, there is a lot to be said for that, but I think we need to understand the historical connections. Why do we think of it as empty and what is it about how it's owned now and parceled up and controlled that we can challenge through trespass, etc. But then there are people who live there. How often do we hear from people who live there about how they feel? How do they feel about... Uh, people in cities, how do they feel about what's happening to their livelihoods, their services, their health service, their, you know, whatever it is, same thing, problems that, that we have. There needs to be more interconnection, more more discussion about these things. And when we talk about the rural, we think of empty spaces. Well, what about the small towns? Mm. You know, the small towns, the market towns, the overspill towns, the crummy towns that nobody ever talks about. Are they rural? You know, are they urban? What are they? They all have Tory MPs or Lib Dems. Yes. There's a big by-election coming up this week. It's unlikely there'll be anything other than what they were before, maybe with a reduced majority. Mm. You know, it's a real problem. It is. And that is why, Ron, your work remains integral to how we move or possibly mm. imagine moving forwards. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chantel, for Ron. allowing this opportunity to show the interconnections. Ron, thank you so much for coming on the show. And listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 